You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you to join me then as I'm going to read from the Gospel of Matthew. Our journey as a church uh, for the last year and a half has taken us through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we are at what it seems to be, by most, by most accounts, the turning point of the gospel. And so uh, my goal has been to schedule it so that these, the language that we find here about the nature of Jesus in the 15th and 16th chapter, and even especially here, uh, lands us right here at this Holy Week where we celebrate tonight Good Friday and then even on Sunday the Easter celebration, the, the resurrection day of Jesus. And so in this turning point of the gospel of Matthew, you'll hear the language of Good Friday, and also the language of Easter as we celebrate it. And so uh, you might find yourself wondering how it is that Christians would call such an awful day a good day. And so I want to read to you out of the Gospel of Matthew as Jesus is teaching some of these people about who he is and what he will do. And so I'll read to you beginning in verse 13, but we're going to spend most of our time in three verses, verses 21, 22, and 23, as the confession of who Jesus is and what he has come to do becomes clear. The climax of the the story, in fact, from here on out, he will begin to make his way to Jerusalem to suffer and to be crucified as we commemorate even this evening. So beginning in verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But I will, excuse me, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside And began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I want to read to you from the prophet Isaiah in the 55th chapter, God giving a vision thousands of years before Jesus of what it is that God would come and do in the redeeming work of the Christ. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. 
Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread or your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make you with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And listen to verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In simultaneous fashion, Peter professes that he gets it. Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus tells him, you're blessed. You're blessed, Simon, because the Lord has shown you this. This isn't something you deduced on your own. This is something that the power of the Holy Spirit has revealed to you. And immediately after, you see an illustration of the prophet Isaiah's words, don't you? That the ways that God is working are far above our own. That the ways that God is working, even here in the redemptive work of Jesus, for at least Peter, aren't quite clear to him. And so he simultaneously professes that Jesus is the Christ, and yet he still has much to learn. And so in two sections, at the turning point of this entire gospel, we find the profession of faith that will turn the entirety of the book, immediately followed by Jesus rebuking the man who made the profession of faith and telling him, get behind me, Satan. So I want to walk through, I think, two different parts of this. You'll see the inevitability of suffering and death. Suffering and death that you see Simon wanting to ignore, but you also see what I hope is good news for us, and that is the relentlessness of Jesus to face death. I think as we kind of walk through these couple of parts, we'll we'll find some applications, hopefully some principles, and and maybe even uh, some, some understanding of how it is that Christians could call a day of such sorrow and death, where an innocent man was betrayed and abandoned, handed over to the outsiders to be killed publicly, good. So the lesson I think you, you especially learn here, the wisdom I think that's instructive for us, when you see Peter on one hand being blessed because he sees that Jesus is the Christ and immediately followed up by Jesus rebuking him saying, you don't get it at all. You can profess Jesus as Lord and still have much to learn about him. You could see Jesus as Lord And that might be a miraculous, powerful work of the Holy Spirit, and yet, friend, you might have much to learn. Specifically here, you might have much to learn about suffering and about death, and even, in this case, the suffering and death of Jesus. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, immediately followed by, 
He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. Now, we talked about this before as we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, but this is what's known as the messianic secret. It's kind of a paradox that Jesus would come and be such a public figure and then tell his disciples, hey, don't tell everyone about me yet. Now, the reason is that he hasn't come into, uh, come into the, the reason in which he's come, he's come in, namely to be handed over, crucified, and resurrected. Then the last words of the Gospel of Matthew is the opposite. Go tell everyone. Make disciples of everyone. But at the very least, if you find yourself wondering why weren't the disciples allowed to go and tell everything they knew about Jesus, the next verse answers the question because they didn't quite get it yet. They hadn't quite seen everything that Jesus came to do. And so, verse 21, this language from that time, a turning point, also showed up in verse, or excuse me, in, in chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Suffering and death are the inevitable results of sin. Sin, that's a word that you'll hear religious people, Christians use a lot. Sin is simply the, the language for the offense that we have committed against God, right? If you, if you commit an offense against the state, it's called a crime, right? If you, if you commit an offense in a sporting event, right, it's called a penalty or a, you get the idea, like a, a foul, right? Uh, but, but, to, but to rebel against God is the language is language of sin, and from the beginning of the story, when the, when the first people rebelled against God and said, I don't want God, I want something else, that, that language of sin inevitably results in suffering and death. In fact, the Ro the, Paul's uh, letter to the Romans, an apostle writing to a, a phenomenal church and an impactful church in the region in Rome, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages then of sin is death. And that makes sense, the pain of alienation. If God is the creator, the sustainer of the universe, to rebel against him and to be separated from him would naturally be alienating and it would cause pain. If God's the source of life and you turn from the source of life, the logical conclusion is death. And that even includes the alienation of our minds against that which is good. You hear that in his rebuke. You're not setting your mind. Did you hear him tell Peter on the things of God? And we have a strong resistance to pain. And yet we find in this text, Jesus has an even stronger determination to face it. You see here the relentlessness of pain, suffering, and death. Seen in even the way that Peter said, far be it for you, Lord, to face it. We don't want any part of that. And yet, in spite of seeing the relentlessness of pain, suffering, and death, you see the relentlessness of Jesus to face it. The, relent, the unrelenting nature of pain, suffering, and death because of sin is faced to face with the unrelenting nature of the Savior because of grace. Simultaneously, we see here the effects and weight of sin and the effects and the weight of the Savior. So Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, but he still has much to learn. And so his response is pretty natural for us. Sin, which causes alienation, leaves us in suffering and pain because we're separated from the source of life and healing. And we have a natural resistance to that pain and suffering. And I believe this is why. Because we don't want to admit how big a deal sin really is. 
Even now, like there's, there's something of, if, if I were to, to, to even repeat that word over and over again, to talk about sin, right? To talk about how we are unworthy of God's love, right? There's something in us that feels uncomfortable. And I hope, I hope it feels uncomfortable. If you find yourself going like, this always makes me feel weird when I'm around, around religious people or in the church and they talk about sin. And I would encourage you, that's because the Holy Spirit is making you uncomfortable. You're not supposed to feel comfortable about it. That's not how you were created to feel, And we would rather resist it because we don't want to think that it's that big of a deal. And we don't especially want to think that there's no solution to it, that there's not a quick fix for it, or even worse, that we might even be somehow contributing to it. And yet Jesus says he must go to Jerusalem and experience suffering. And Peter's response to that is that he does not want that to happen. He does not want Jesus, after all, he's just thought of him as the son of man, but still has an incomplete picture, as we read just a moment ago, that Jesus is also the fulfillment of the suffering servant who came as a vicarious sufferer for sinners to take their place. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Of prophecy. But Jesus' response is profound, is it not? Get behind me, Satan. Now, it's interesting. He says, I'm going to be killed, and then he says, on the third day be raised. You see that in verse 21. But like us, that isn't what he remembers. That isn't what Peter initially, right, is, is captivated by. It's like, hey, I'm going to be killed and be raised victoriously. And, and it's like, Peter goes, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Did you just say you're going to be killed? You're going to suffer and be killed? And before Jesus can even say, yeah, but I'm going to be, he's like, far be it for you, that's, that will not happen, right? Over my dead body, as if to say, And Peter, um, this is how much he doesn't want to face the consequences of death and sin. Peter, did you get that in verse 22? Takes Jesus and pulls him aside. Now, just uh, at least in some way, see the absurdity of this? To take the the creator and sustainer of the universe and tell him how it's going to work. This Okay, Jesus, I know you created all things and by thing, well, all things are for you and to you and you hold things together. However, I, I need to inform, right? You, you get the idea. And, and I want you to see it because as I'll show you in just a moment, this is a beautiful picture of what our hearts are like. From the beginning, the very first story of the, the people who had everything, right? If you ever find yourself thinking, man, if things were better, I would be a better person and I would love God and be a more righteous person. Now, the first people that ever existed had everything they needed, including the presence of God. And they were like, nah, I would like more, please. All the way to you see here, even the disciples going like, no, I don't really think this is a good idea, Jesus. I think I know better. Suffering and death are inevitable because of sin. And we don't like to admit that. We don't like to admit that. And Jesus confronts it. Even though uh, evidently there's suffering and pain that we don't like to admit, we, we would rather, we'd much rather have a quick fix. After all, I mean, think about it. If there's a quick fix, that means the problem's not that big, right? Have you ever been there? Like, and, I, and here's my encouragement to you. Anytime you find yourself going like, why is, isn't this fixed yet? You have minimized the power and effect of sin, right? If you're like, why am I not over this yet? It's like, because you don't think sin, that's a big a deal. You don't think it's that big a deal. And so he pulls Jesus aside, and Jesus tells him in a powerful way, get behind me, Satan. Sin makes us not want pain, 
And sin makes us not want to pay for sin. We don't want to think it's that big a deal. Even though it alienates us from God, we like to think that it's not that big a deal. In fact, maybe we are alienated from God, but I can handle it. I can work my way back up to God. I can fix it. Just give me another shot. You hear it? And so as Jesus is rebuking Peter, you see a powerful thing. He, he looks right through Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now, now this is a callback to the temptation of Jesus in the first few chapters of Matthew. When Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, genuinely tempted, he's the son of man, he's the human one, he's the, the divine the divine presence of God incarnate. He's the human one, fully God and truly human. And yet he was fully tempted by Satan. And remember, what, the, what were the temptations? Satan comes up to him and says, all right, I know you're hungry. I know you're starving. I know you're miserable. You're dehydrated. But right, just exercise your power over here to relieve some of your suffering. Right? Turn, that, turn that stone into bread. Feed yourself. And, and the temptation evidently was for Satan to come to Jesus and offer him glory without cost. Glory, joy, comfort, satisfaction without dealing with sin. Pleasure, all that you want, without any pain. And the temptation that Satan offered to Jesus is the same one that he offers to us. There's a quick fix. It's not that big a deal. And even now, I'm telling you, the, the Son of God took on flesh to die, to make you new. And part of you is like, whoa, far be it from you to say that. Is it, am I really that bad? And the powerful thing that tempted Jesus, truly evidently, was to fulfill God's purpose apart from suffering. Fulfill God's purpose, get all the glory without paying for the cost of sin. And Jesus looks right through Peter to the author of that statement that denies suffering, that wants anything but the cross, and rebukes him. After all, just think about this in context of the temptation of Jesus with Satan, right? Satan comes to Jesus and he says, look, I'll give you everything, everything you see. I'll give it all if you'll just worship me, right? I mean, just just think and hear the desperation of the accuser, Satan, the enemy, against Jesus in that moment. Feel how futile he must experience that interaction with Jesus. I mean, after all, if you're lucky, Satan will tempt you with things like, I don't know, sex, pleasure, right? If, if you're lucky, Satan will come and tempt you and try to derail your life with a good job, right? With wealth. Maybe he'll try to derail you with pornography or or some sort of kind of idolatry, some sort of obsession with approval and acceptance and achievement, right? right? Like that's, that's what, that's what, those are the kind of trinkets, things, the, the stuff that Satan would offer you and me to keep us off track, right? To, to tempt us from carrying out God's purpose in our life. But everything? It's as if Satan looks in Jesus and says, I'll do anything. I'll give you anything you want if you will not go to this cross, Whatever you do, do not fulfill God's plan through suffering. And so you can sympathize with Peter here for not wanting suffering. 
But even though you see that suffering and death are inevitable, results of sin that we want to ignore and deny, the suffering and death of Jesus are the inevitable results of grace. If suffering and death is the result of our sin, then the suffering and death of Jesus is the result of grace. And Jesus, looking straight through Peter to the, to the ancient snake, that wicked serpent, the author of that statement that, that God isn't really that good and God really doesn't have a way to restore his people. And he says, get behind me. You're getting in my way. You are a hindrance to me. Sin makes us not want any pain at all because sin makes us not want to admit that we have to pay for sin. And the good news we hear in this passage is that Jesus has power over sin, death, and hell. So much so that he does not deny it. You see, wanting redemption without cost, as we see here, is worldly. It's not godly. And when you see Jesus' determination in the face of pain, suffering, and death, even on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see how Jesus will be undeterred. Looking at the thing that stands against you and I. Looking at the author of that cross-denying statement and rebuking him and saying, get out of my way. You see, to think about the weight and power of death that Christians over the centuries have commemorated on this day, Good Friday, is actually a source of goodness. I hope it feels uncomfortable. It ought to. There's something in us that wants better. And yet the resistance, evidently, of looking at the cross and seeing for it for what it is might be satanic. To want something other than what Christ has offered might actually be the work of the devil. To add these up, think of it as like the temptation that you and I have to think that our sin is not that bad is a lie from the pit of hell. And it will leave you thinking about wanting, right, desiring something else. Right? I, don't, I don't need a savior to redeem my soul. I just, man, I just need to like get through this next season. I'll be fine, right? Once I get this thing paid off, then I'll, I'll, be, I'll be making it, right? I don't need a savior to, con, like, to, to change me and make me new. I just need another chance, man. I'm not a bad person. Just give me another, you hear it? Like, and those things, evidently, Jesus would look at you and me and say, not maybe to you directly, but to the author of those cross-denying, graceless statements, get behind me, Satan. Think of it this way. Paul tells the Corinthian church this in, in the second chapter. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Right? This is uh, every pastor's favorite verse. It's like, all right, he's not that bright. Well, what are you going to do? For I decided, Paul tells them, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You hear the centrality of this statement, so much so that he was even able to be weak and frail before them. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but instead in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, in order that what? Your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So friend, here's some applications that I think as we as I invite you even tonight to reflect upon the death of Jesus and to think about 
our desire to deny and avoid suffering and death. I want to invite you to begin to look your own death in the eye. I want you to think about, now for some of you it's not difficult, if I just ask you to think about suffering, right now this might be the most miserable day on earth, and so it's not hard, right? You're like, okay, yeah, it's been a terrible week, it's been awful, thank you, right, check. But we're reflecting on suffering, reflecting even on our own mortality because something comes out of it. Let me give you four encouragements that I think come out of this. One, we have to admit the fact that we resist seeing suffering and the cost of our own sin. It doesn't come natural to us. But I want you to see the goodness of God and the necessity of Christ's suffering. I want you to see the goodness of God in the suffering of Jesus. We, like Peter, look at suffering and say, nope, no thank you. Because we don't like to look at the cost of sin. We don't like Jesus looking at us and saying, I'm going to have to die for what you have done. I'm going to have to die. What you have done will cost me my life. And we like to think, no, no, surely not Jesus, right? You, you, can, you can kind of, you, you can feel it, right? When Jesus looks at you and goes like, you are so hopeless. I will have to suffer and die and be betrayed in order to redeem you to the Father. And you and I go like, come here, Jesus. They were listening when you said that. There was no need, right? There was no need for you to, you get the idea? We don't like to look at the cost of anything, really, much less the cost of our own sin. And the first story of the Bible is, people who instead of facing the consequences of their own sin said, nope. Remember that? And what'd they do? They hid. They hid. And we've been doing it ever since. Here's secondly, you see the mind of God and the beauty of the logic of the gospel here. Peer into it with me. The beauty of the logic of the gospel. That is, you, you see the picture of the mind of God towards us that you are fully received and accepted in Christ, but your sin is not condoned. And on the other hand, the Holy Spirit looks into your soul and mine and convicts us of things that you and I both know we have an uneasy conscience about. A conscience about. Like, we are convicted of sin and yet not condemned. I want you to see the beauty of the logic of the gospel, that because of the cross, you and I are received, but our sin is not condoned. And at the same time, we are commended. Our sin is convicted and we are not condemned. It's beautiful. And when this starts to change you, when you see the beauty of how God has worked this in and through you, it starts to show up in you. And friend, the world needs this now more than ever. The ability to disagree with someone without you or them passing condemnation. Well, at the same time, genuinely being convicted of wrongdoing and yet not cast off. Do you feel it? Do you see the, the world needs this? The ability to both rebuke and love at the same time. And if you don't believe me, did you see what he called, he called Peter Satan? That's hate speech today. Now, to be fair, to be fair, don't, don't go running off. I'm going to be like Jesus and tell people to get behind me and say, no, he, he paid for the right to do that with his own life. And so if you're going to do that, you're right. You can do that. You, are, you have permission. Tell people, get behind me, Satan, that you're about to die for. That's, that will work. Jesus has a, a, some privilege here. You and I do not. But think about this. We both know that Jesus loved and cared for Peter. And yet, evidently, correction was a part of his discipleship rebuke is love. 
So friend, I want to ask you, who do you love enough to rebuke without condemnation? And here might be the harder one. Who do you love enough to receive rebuke without condemnation? The enemy wants you to think you have to have one or the other, right? And that's why we're so afraid to commend anyone, because we're afraid of like endorsing everything about them, right? And we're unable to say anything good about someone because we're like, oh, I don't want to be wrongly associated with that person. On the other hand, we're afraid to, we're afraid to rebuke or, or be rebuked because it's condemnation. You'll be canceled, right? You get the idea? So friend, who do you love enough to rebuke without condemnation? Do, do your rebukes and corrections lean more on condemnation or are they receptive and inviting? And who do you love and trust enough to receive rebuke? Here's a third application. The power of the cross gives us the ability to tell our own story in a way that glorifies Jesus, even at our own expense. Now, I've said this before, but you see it profoundly here. Every time Matthew and the other gospel writers tell us something ridiculous about themselves, they're doing it on purpose. And I want you to get that. If you've ever read the book of Jonah, the story of a prophet sent by God, and he, he's, he's like racist, awful, and, and doesn't want, because I hate the Ninevites, I don't want to go to those people. And then when, when they repent and come to the Lord, he's like mad, why didn't you destroy them, right? And then the story of the Jonah ends, and he's like, I'm so mad. And he's like, you mad? And, like, and he goes, I'm mad enough to die. And that's the end of the story. And you're left wondering, like, did Jonah repent? Is this like a what not to do story? And yet I want you to know the title of the book tells us the answer to that question. Jonah's repentance was telling the story. Jonah had received enough grace to where he was willing to say, I want to tell you a story about the love of God and the butt of the joke is me. Friend, the cross allows you and I to tell stories in which we are not the hero. I mean, think about it. Peter endorsed this story. Peter and like, I don't know, we'd probably come up to our friend Matthew and be like, Matthew, are you going to tell that story about that time Jesus told me, get behind me, Satan? Is there a way you could retell that in a better way, right? And yet imagine the freedom that comes from knowing that you are so fully covered, so fully comforted, so fully received by the grace of God in Jesus that you're willing to stop photoshopping your life. Paul tells the Corinthian church elsewhere that he starts to boast in his weakness because of the power of Christ. Imagine publicly repenting. Imagine your life telling a story in which Jesus is glorified, even if you look kind of silly. One of the biggest challenges in sharing the gospel is the need to have it all together. And friend, here's the problem. That's not how you became a Christian. For the believers in the room, you didn't come to Christ because you had it all together. It was quite the opposite. So maybe dispense with that for a while. Here's the last thing. Jesus is relentless in his pursuit to make payment for sin. He is relentless. You see it in the bookends of this passage. In the first, first verse we read, verse 21, he said, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, that language of, that language of commitment. I say here, relentlessness. I must do this. I can do no other. I must do this. And then when he rebukes Satan, he says, get behind me. You're in my way. You are in my way. Friend, how can you face death? Because you have heard and seen the unrelenting grace of Jesus. 
How can you and I face suffering this week in our own life and even our own death? Because you know the one who looks at death in the eye and says, get out of my way. And when you know the power and victory of Jesus, you become willing to face suffering and death. Not just to face your own death, but you might even suffer the loss of your own life willingly for his sake. You'd undergo suffering, persecution, if you must. You'd face alienation of others in order to share the gospel with them. You'd face it because you know how faithfully and relentlessly Jesus has faced it. And loving Christ's sacrifice is thinking like God. Rejecting the cross is rejecting God. As we see here, rejecting suffering and the cross is thinking like a human or worse, like Satan. So in a moment, as you and I ponder the weight of our own death and sin and ponder the weight of Jesus' death, as Christians have done on Good Friday for centuries, we are going to be faced with a mystery. In a moment, we're going to stand together, we're going to sing and begin to reflect, and then we together are going to suffer, or we might, uh, we together are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate communion. We're going to hear a mystery from people around the room who will tell us about the good news of Christ's love for us, that he broke, he suffered death and the breaking of his own body we commemorate in the breaking of bread. He poured out blood for us and we commemorate that in the way that we celebrate by taking part of juice. And so in a moment, we're going to respond by singing to Jesus. We're going to sing about Jesus to one another. And as we do, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that we're invited to reflect. We're invited to prepare ourselves and then respond to the good news of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. And so there'll be four different tables around the room. And as we begin to sing and prepare, you're going to be invited to join. And, and as we share the Lord's Supper together, it's, this invitation is for any of you who are repenting, baptized believers in Jesus. And if that's not you, that's okay. I'm really glad you're here. The invitation for you is to be that. It's to, to turn, the, the word here is repent, to turn from your own sin and to trust in Jesus as a right and good sacrifice. To trust him even with death because he has overcome death. And so, if that's not you, if, not a, if you're not a repenting believer in Jesus, then I'm, I'm really grateful you're here. Uh, but the invitation for you this morning is that you might become that. And yet, for all of us, the invitation is open for us to respond in singing, worshiping the risen Savior together. Because after all, in 1 Corinthians 11, when the Apostle Paul tells us what we're doing, and he tells us what we are commemorating. He explains the Lord's Supper this way. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And someone will declare to you a mystery as you, in a moment, go around the room. You'll make your way to one of the four tables. They'll be serving gluten-free in this back corner, back to your left and my right to the far back room, uh, back of the corner of the room. It's not a corner. That's not helpful. Forget I said anything. Over there. And you're invited to contemplate a mystery. Someone will say something to you that is profound. Because the table that we're invited to, to meet with Jesus, here's good news for you. It's not a bargaining table. It's a banquet table. And instead of being invited to experience judgment, 
and to contemplate the weight of our own sin and death, we are declared a mystery, the weight of his death over our sin. And someone will say to you, breaking a piece of bread, this is the body of Christ, and it was broken for you. It was sufficient for you. It was enough for you. This, as you'll take that piece of bread that's broken for you, symbolizing the broken body of Christ, you'll dip it into the juice, symbolizing the shed blood of Jesus, thereby partaking of this body and blood of Christ together. And someone will declare a mystery, the blood of Christ poured out for you. A mystery that as we look and contemplate even our own death and frailty and suffering, we find comfort because we know what he has endured on our behalf. So let's pray together as we begin to reflect on that even now. Jesus, thank you for your goodness towards us. Thank you that you looked to the cross and despising its shame, took upon yourself the penalty that we owed. Thank you that in your kindness you did not withhold all that was required. The payment and penalty of sin is death. Blood must be shed. And yet for the sinner, that blood is not our own. Thanks be to God that the blood that is to be shed and paid, the vengeance, the justice that we desire in, in our own hearts and lives, the, uh, all the things we wish to see repaired in the world, in our own hearts and in the hearts of others, there is justice to be had, but thank God that for us, we received mercy and grace instead of justice. And the justice that our sin and the sin of the world has deserved was paid for by Jesus for all those that would turn from their sin and look to him. So might we do that now? Might we contemplate a paradox and a mystery that all that is broken in the world will be made right because the highest price has been paid to repair it. That all that is destroyed and perverted about the world will be made right by Jesus and it will begin one at a time as we receive the redemptive work of his broken body and shed blood for sinners who turn from their sin and find the comfort and grace at a table, a table where you offer your very self to meet with those who would come. So prepare our hearts now as we do just that. May you be glorified as we worship and respond and as we meet you at the table. In Jesus' name, amen.